the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this 20th of September at about seven minutes after four o'clock. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Today, I'm looking forward in the five o'clock hour to a conversation with Tani Zarelli. She's the CEO of Options 360, and uh, we're encouraging you to participate in the Clark County Give More 24 campaign. You can learn more at options360.org uh, for information about this campaign to uh, help them raise funds in order to reach um, women in their community, young women and other women in their community. You can also, uh, you can go to the website, as I mentioned, options360.org. You can also phone them at 360-687-8943. But today is a big day for Options 360 and helping them to continue the great work that they have done in Southwest Washington. By the way, a gift of $92, uh, that would provide one nurse assessment, a pregnancy test, and ultrasound. Somebody walks in either by appointment or just off the street, and that $92 would make sure that they would have everything they need for that to be a successful appointment. A gift of $184 would provide a nurse assessment, pregnancy test, and ultrasound for two women. And you can do the math uh, from there. Again, the telephone number 360-687-8943, or you can uh, go to the website options360.org. Big day for uh, Options 360 and their work as a pregnancy resource center in southwest Washington. Taking a look at developing news uh, for the day, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's accuser has init- has rather until Friday morning to say that she'll testify next Monday. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley said earlier in the day more and an update on that. Senator Grassley has blasted Senator Dianne Feinstein and other Democrats for their handling of the sexual assault allegations against Judge Kavanaugh and alleged attempts to delay and obstruct his confirmation. And in an exclusive interview with Fox News, Laura Ingram, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, slammed John Kerry and other former Obama administration officials for attempting to undermine President Trump's agenda. Attorney General Jeff Sessions' job once again appears to be in jeopardy after President Trump rips him In an interview published on Wednesday, and for the second time in less than a year, the federal government reportedly has acknowledged losing track of nearly 1,500 immigrant children placed in foster care nationwide. Now, last time there was a, uh, the answer that, no, they're not lost. We just don't have a current phone number. We couldn't reach them at this very moment. We know with whom they are, where they've been placed. We just haven't been able to reach them Uh, immediately. So we're not sure what that means. But nonetheless, it sure doesn't sound good. Well, the clock is ticking for Kavanaugh's accuser. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley has warned the woman accusing uh, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault that time is beginning to run out if she wants to explain her allegations on Capitol Hill next Monday. Well, today, this afternoon, we learned that Christine Ford, the California professor accusing 
uh, nominee Kavanaugh of sexual assault told the Senate Judiciary Committee that uh, she would be prepared to testify next week, apparently backing off her bid for the FBI to first launch a new inquiry. Well, according to an email sent her attorney, um, by her attorney rather, Deborah Katz, and first obtained by the New York Times, Ford would appear as long as senators provide terms that are fair and which ensure her safety. Now, in terms of her safety and fair, they have offered, of course, to either come to where she is, to hold a public hearing, a private hearing, and so on. So it seems that they're willing to bend over backward Uh, to at least try to meet that standard. As you are aware, she has been receiving death threats, which have been reported to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. She and her family have been forced out of their home. The email continue. She wishes to testify, provided that we can agree on terms that are fair and which ensure her safety. Senate Republicans had invited her to testify at a hearing on Monday and gave her a, a Friday deadline to indicate whether or not she would attend. Well, that Monday hearing still appears unlikely and uh, will take place at some point during the week, but we don't know when. In the letter on Thursday, Ford's attorney wrote that it is possible for Ford to testify on Monday. She um, is not possible. I apologize. She added that the uh, committee's insistence that it occur then is arbitrary in any event. Ford's openness to testify threatened to once again upend Kavanaugh's confirmation process. Senate Republicans had said that if Ford struck uh, stuck rather to her apparent refusal to testify, they would have to move forward with a vote on Kavanaugh on Wednesday. That vote is now in doubt. However, the attorneys uh, concluded her strong preference continues to be for the Senate Judiciary Committee to allow for a full investigation prior to her testimony. We learned also this afternoon that the Senate has already begun its uh, investigation by contacting others who have been named in uh, these allegations as well. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Chuck Grassley pushed back sharply on that request writing in a letter that it was not the FBI's role to investigate a matter such as this and that the agencies already had reviewed the allegations and supplemented its background check of Kavanaugh. Her attorneys say there's a need to be Uh, There needs to be an investigation, which is exactly what the committee has been doing all week. And we would love to hear from Dr. Ford. Democratic staff uh, is invited to participate fully every step of the way. And in a series of tweets earlier today, Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee noted that they had obtained statements under penalty of felony from three people at the House party where the alleged assault occurred, including Kavanaugh, his friend Mark Judge, and another individual. Fox News had learned that Kavanaugh provided his statement under oath exposing him to potential perjury liability if he were lying. Committee members also wrote that they have reached out to a fourth person allegedly at the party, as well as a schoolmate who claimed on social media this week to have information related to Dr. Ford's allegations, but had not heard back. Uh, That was an apparent reference to a widely circulated online account by Krista Miranda King, who claimed that she heard about the alleged assault at the time. King deleted her online post after questions emerged about apparent inconsistencies. Ford's attorney says there needs to be an investigation, which is exactly what the committee has been doing all week, the GOP member wrote. And we would uh, love to hear from Dr. Ford. Democratic staff is invited to participate. Meanwhile, tensions over Kavanaugh's nominations were evident, nomination rather, were evident uh, on Capitol Hill. A total of 33 protesters were arrested outside Grassley's office in the Hart Senate office building this afternoon. 23 were booked in the morning in the Dirksen Senate office building. They were charged with obstructing and crowding, according to the Capitol Police officials. Sources say that several death threats have been sent to Kavanaugh and his family, more on that momentarily, as well as to 
Dr. Ford, Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, a moderate and potential key swing vote in Kavanaugh's confirmation, also said she's been receiving threatening messages. In response to Collins' complaint, a top Democratic senator tweeted, boo-hoo-hoo. He later deleted that tweet and called it stupid, which, of course, it was. Ford, who was acknowledged that she could not remember some of the details, in fact, many of the details from the alleged sexual assault incident decades ago, had been under intense pressure to make her allegations against Kavanaugh under oath. Kavanaugh denied the allegations when he spoke under oath with Senate Republican staff earlier this week. Uh, Democratic Judiciary Committee members and staff refused to participate in those closed-door proceedings, although they were invited to do so. The California professor said she was reluctant to come forward and did so only because her name was forced by the media. Well, it wasn't forced by the media. That name was only known uh, by the Democrats to whom the letter was written. Uh, and it was somehow leaked. She uh, wrote a letter outlining her allegations in July to Senator Dianne Feinstein. My understanding was it was Representative Eshu who passed it along to Senator Feinstein, but uh, did not mention them to other senators or federal investigators until last week. The top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee said that she was motivated by a desire to protect Ford's identity. Apparently that desire uh, waned over time, according to a scathing letter sent by uh, Grassley to top Democrats this week. Feinstein actually compromised Ford's privacy by waiting so long and allowing information about her letter to leak to the media just days before a key vote on Kavanaugh's confirmation was scheduled to take place. In other of the developing stories, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley unloaded a torrent of criticism. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in an exclusive interview with Fox News' Laura Ingram, ripped his predecessor, John Kerry, and other former members of the Obama administration for allegedly trying to undermine President Trump's foreign policy agenda. Secretary Kerry can't seem to get off the stage, Pompeo said on the Ingram angle on Wednesday. It's one thing to meet with your counterpart. It's another thing to do what Secretary Kerry, Wendy Sherman, Ernst Moniz, frankly, the whole gang has done, which is to actively seek to undermine what President Trump is trying to achieve. Pompeo said Kerry, Moniz, and uh, the others are acting in ways that are harmful to achieving what's best for the American people, which is the prerogative of the executive. And to consider the impact that this could have in previous or rather future administrations when the Democrats are in the White House. When asked whether he supports calls for the Justice Department to investigate whether Kerry violated federal law by meeting with Iranian officials, Pompeo said, I'll leave the legal action to others. I'm trying to execute America's foreign policy. And President uh, Trump, rather, again, stirred speculation about Attorney General Jeff Sessions' future with a new public attack on Wednesday in an interview with Hill TV. Uh, Trump tore into Sessions saying, I don't have an attorney general. He said the beleaguered Sessions was absent and performing poorly in his role as the nation's top lawyer. Trump's relationship with Sessions has been strained since the former U.S. senator from Alabama recused himself from the Russia investigation in early 2017, which Sessions, uh, while Sessions rather, was the first senator to back Trump and has been central in passing key planks of the president's agenda, particularly on border enforcement and law and order. Trump has repeatedly slammed him Publicly. And in the latest interview, Trump said his frustration extends beyond the Russia recusal. I'm not happy at the border. I'm not happy with numerous things, not just this, he said. However, when asked about the Hill 
an interview by reporters, Trump appeared to mildly walk back the comments. I'm disappointed in the attorney general for numerous reasons, but we have an attorney general. I'm disappointed in the attorney general for many reasons. And you understand that, he said. That was a quote. I didn't just repeat myself. Well, twice in less than a year, the federal government has lost track of nearly 1,500 migrant children after placing them in the homes of sponsors across the country. Federal officials have acknowledged the Health and Human Services Department, the Associated Press reported, recently told Senate staffers that case managers could not find 1,488 children after they made follow-up calls to check on their safety from April through June. That number represents about 13 percent of all unaccompanied children. The administration moved out of shelters and foster homes during that time. The agency first disclosed that it had lost track of 1,475 late last year, and it came under fire at a Senate hearing in April. And on this day in 2017, Hurricane Maria, the strongest hurricane to hit Puerto Rico in more than 80 years, strikes the island, wiping out as much as 75 percent of the power distribution lines and causing an island-wide blackout. And on this day in 2000, Independent Counsel Robert Ray announces the end of the Whitewater investigation, saying there is insufficient evidence to warrant charges against President Bill Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton. And on this day in 1973, in their so-called Battle of the Sexes, tenets legend Billie Jean King defeats Bobby Riggs in straight sets 6-4-6-3-6-3 at the Houston Astrodome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. From Tani Zarelli, she's the CEO of Options 360, and they are currently inve- engaged in a campaign, Clark County Give More 24 campaign, and we're encouraging KPDQ listeners throughout today, the day, to consider giving generously to the work of this Pregnancy Resource Center in Clark County. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can go to their website, which is options360.org. You can also phone in a gift, and that number is 360-687-8943. When you go to the website, by the way, just hit the donate button. And to give you a little perspective, $92 will provide one nurse assessment, pregnancy test, and ultrasound. So if you'd like to provide for one woman who walks into uh, Options 360, or perhaps multiple women, $276 will provide a nurse assessment, pregnancy test, and ultrasound for three women. So go to the website, options360.org, and that's 360 rather than spelled out, and uh, look for the donate button. You'll be hearing more about that throughout the day here on KPDQ as we are partnering with them to get the word out and hopefully to get the uh, funds in. And this is to help market uh, the ministry they do to uh, young women uh, all across southwest Washington. Well, Christine Blasey Ford and the wife of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh have both received death threats after Ford, um, uh, amid the judge's confirmation process, accused him of sexual assault. And the days after she accused Kavanaugh of uh, pinning her, well, I won't go into the details. We don't need to. It was in 1980, the alleged event. Um, Ford's lawyer told the New York Times that in addition to threats, her email accounts have been hacked and she's been forced to leave her home. Kavanaugh's wife, Ashley, has also been on the receiving end of graphic death threats uh, sent in emails obtained by media outlets as well. I'm not going to read them, although they are heavily redacted because they are so foul in their content. And I imagine that's very similar to what Christine Christine Blasey uh, Ford is also receiving. Um, uh, The bottom line, it's all 
unacceptable and inappropriate. And it's uh, unfortunate that that kind of language and that kind of response is becoming all too common when we've lost our ability to be civil to one another on this and many other um, matters. Judge Kavanaugh is himself receiving death threats, a senior source has indicated. He has adamantly denied the allegations, has now testified under oath. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, it's likely that his accuser will in some form also testify under oath sometime next week. And it's not clear at what um, location or at what time, but that's something that uh, that one can look forward to. Now, one of the things I've been hearing is that during the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill uh, conflict, which has some similarities, but is not um, identical to this set of accusations at this point in the process of trying to confirm a, a Supreme Court nominee, that the FBI spent three days and did an investigation. And I'm hearing conflicting stories about whether or not the FBI has, in fact, done this sort of thing before. And if they were engaged in that three-day investigation, which some suggest is just to just take a matter of a couple of days and this whole thing could be resolved. But part of the problem is at this point, we only have the word of the accuser. There is no evidence to... Uh, to research, we're talking about 36 years ago, and at least three of the individuals who are also identified or named in the letter, which, by the way, Senate Judiciary Committee members have yet to see. So all they have are press reports, uh, but nonetheless have denied that they were there or uh, participated. Well, an FBI inquiry, according to Fred Lucas, uh, into a California woman's allegations against the nominee uh, would be highly unusual, but wouldn't necessarily delay a Senate vote on confirmation, according to legal experts. Uh, the professor of clinical psychology at Palo Alto University in California alleges uh, the attempted assault uh, when the two were teenagers in suburban Maryland in the 80s. The Senate Judiciary Committee is scheduled to, to reconvene on Monday to hear both Ford and Kavanaugh. It appears that that will be stretched out into some other day um, during the week, uh, although Brett Kavanaugh has indicated he is prepared and will be present to testify. I'm not sure they would go forward with one without the other. Dr. Ford's, uh, rather, Dr. Ford's request is... In reverse order, Michael Clark, a former FBI agent, told the Daily Signal, saying if she does not come forward for a Senate hearing, the Senate is chasing its tail. Clark, who lectures in the criminal justice department at the University of New Haven, said the Senate then could decide to ask the FBI to look at the matter further. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Senate is investigating the matter at this point, and this is based essentially on hearsay because they haven't actually seen uh, the letter and only press report, media reports. Uh, is what they're uh, they're going on. But um, she could testify so senators can determine if she is credible. Clark says if Dr. Ford provides information in a private or public setting, the Senate Judiciary Committee will hash this out to determine if they want to ask the FBI for additional background information. And that would be on uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Any additional FBI probe would only be in the context of the Senate confirmation process as Ford hasn't alleged Kavanaugh committed a federal crime, and that's their jurisdiction. The only criminal matter the FBI may investigate. Only the Montgomery County Police Department, presuming the alleged incident occurred in its jurisdiction, could launch a criminal probe. But the county police have said that they would not investigate unless Ford filed a complaint, which apparently at this point she has not. I, I suppose she still could, although my understanding is the statute of limitations uh, would preclude uh, moving forward with criminal charges. When doing background investigations for a Supreme Court nominee, the FBI interviews hundreds of individuals, including past employers, past and present co-workers, past college professors, classmates, and so on. The interviews produce findings um, several feet thick for the White House without conclusion. The FBI's uh, background investigations, even for district court nominees, are exhausted with dozens of interviews, Clark said, but it is strictly information gathering. In a legal context, 
it would be difficult to launch an investigation. A former federal prosecutor who was chief of the appellate divisions in the Western District of Texas and Northern District of Texas said she may not want to go under oath because there isn't enough information to say anything, Powell said, referring to Ford. There wouldn't be enough evidence for an investigation, much less prosecution in a criminal justice setting. Well, this might be complex politically, but it is a simple legal matter, says Ron Hosko, a former assistant director of the FBI and 30-year veteran of the Bureau. You don't need FBI agents to ask these questions, he says. Senators could do this. More than half of them are already lawyers. Well, the FBI process is geared toward compiling information in a confidential way to prompt people to speak more freely. Now that Ford's allegations are in the public arena, however, there is no longer a need for a confidential FBI investigation when a Senate investigation is more appropriate and currently ongoing. Uh, Writing for the Daily Signal, Fred Lucas, writing on calls for the new FBI probe of Kavanaugh, has no precedent. So maybe that helps us understand just a bit the context of that request. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part, by the way, by Zero Res. Well, President Trump's outside legal counsel is pleased with the progress being made in talks with special counsel Robert Mueller about a potential interview of the president. That's according to a source familiar with the process. Now, we don't know who that source is or how familiar they are with the process, but that's what... The media is uh, quoting uh, that individual as having said, the source said, any interview of the president is unlikely to take place before the November midterm elections. However, when asked about the odds of the president answering questions posed by Mueller, the source said, I think uh, the plane lands. Now, answering questions is one thing. Being interviewed is another. So I'm not sure if we're mixing uh, terms here. But earlier this month, uh, it was reported that the president's attorney had uh, proposed to Mueller that any presidential interview be limited to written questions and answers about allegations of Russian collusion with members of the Trump campaign. The proposal also stated that the president's legal team would not entertain questions about obstruction of justice. Mueller has previously asked for the option of an in-person follow-up interview on the collusion issue, which the president's team is resisting. Resistant uh, to, but has not rejected outright, primarily because the president seems to indicate he would be willing. Well, the president has repeatedly stated that he is willing to answer the uh, special counsel's questions, while his legal team, led by Rudy Giuliani and Jay Sekulow, uh, has shown more reluctance to allow such an encounter, understanding how. Uh, these kinds of legal Q&As can uh, easily be turned uh, against one. Well, the information comes one day after a federal judge in December. Uh, uh, set a December 18th um, as the sentencing date for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who's been a key cooperator of the Mueller probe. Flynn resigned in February of last year, pled guilty that uh, December to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Sergei Kislyak, Russia's ambassador to the U.S., during the transition period between Trump's election and inauguration. According to his plea, Flynn discussed U.S. sanctions with Kislyak on Trump's behalf during the presidential transition and said members of the president's inner circle were aware of and in some cases directing his efforts. Flynn had urged Kislyak not to respond to sanctions imposed by the Obama administration in response to Russian election interference. Flynn also admitted to lying about Turkish lobbying and research work. He belatedly registered with the Justice Department as a foreign agent for the work weeks after he left the White House. And Flynn and other uh, Trump campaign officials Uh, who have pled guilty in the Mueller probe or investigation, including former campaign chairman Paul Manafort and former foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos, have not been accused of any crimes related to election interference. So 
uh, again, uh, it's looking good that the president will um, sit for an interview, but most likely that would be an interview in writing, which I wouldn't describe as an interview, but that's the language that's being used. Meanwhile, the FBI pushed in 2016 to include the discredited dossier into the official intelligence community assessment that Russia interfered in the election to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. Two former senior officials are saying the officials told The Washington Times that as the historic ICA, as it is known, was being drafted, the FBI wanted to fold in allegations and observations from dossier writer Christopher Steele. One source said then FBI Director James Comey directly advocated inclusion. The second source said FBI officials definitely wanted Mr. Steele's charges on Kremlin behavior included, but could not single out Mr. Comey as the main driver. Well, the sources said James Clapper, then director of national intelligence, and John O'Brennan, then director of the CIA, objected on the grounds that the dossier remained largely unconfirmed information from a former British spy not vetted U.S. intelligence. The IC assessment was corroborated intelligence that involved what the intelligence community agreed with, the source said. The dossier was a totally separate thing that had not gone through that type of process, so it should not be included. That was the decision that was made. Well, the two former officials declined to discuss motives for why the FBI wanted to elevate the dossier from outside political research to part of the official government record. Mr. Comey, through a spokesperson, declined to comment. Well, in the fall and early winter of 2016, as the intelligence titans debate whether to include the dossier, the FBI was cranking up its investigation into the Trump campaign and possible collusion with Russia. The Comey-led bureau became heavily invested in that dossier while knowing the charges were anti-Trump opposition research financed by his political opponent, Mrs. Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee. The FBI relied greatly on the dossier to persuade a judge to sign a wiretap warrant on Trump campaign volunteer Carter Page in October of 2016. The application largely on the word of Mr. Steele said Mr. Page was an agent of Russia. Mr. Page has denied all parts of the dossier that pertain to him. He has not been charged. Former FBI Assistant Director Peter Strzok, who led the Trump investigation, text messaged his paramour that the uh, dossier allowed him to open new avenues of investigation unverified, unsubstantiated dossier. Today, none of Mr. Steele's specific collusion charges against Trump's people has been confirmed publicly. In a London court where Mr. Steele is being sued for libel, he filed a declaration that backtracked from the confidence he expressed in the dossier. He wrote of an extensive conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, but in court, he talked only of possible collusion and said all of his allegations needed to be verified. Some allegations were unsolicited call-ins. Hmm. Mr. Comey's dossier history includes the day in January of 2017 when he requested a private meeting with President-elect Trump at Trump Tower to brief him on the dossier's most salacious item that he had engaged with Russian, well, women in 2013. Mr. Comey, Mr. Clapper and Mr. Brennan had just briefed Mr. Trump on the ICA. Mr. Clapper urged Mr. Comey to go further and tell him about the dossier. Mr. Comey didn't tell Mr. Trump, did not, that the product of uh, was opposition research financed by Democrats. According to a Republican majority report from the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the FBI knew in October of 2016 that the Clinton campaign and DNC had financed the dossier. 
Mr. Trump fired Mr. Comey in May of 2017, leading to the appointment of special counsel Mueller, whose Russian investigation continues today. Mr. Comer's, uh, Comey's memoir, A Higher Loyalty, is festooned with criticism of Mr. Trump. He's defended the FBI's dossier reliance by praising Mr. Steele. I won't uh, bother to quote it. But Mr. Comey wrote that Mr. Trump telephoned him to complain about a leak after the entire dossier emerged in January of 2017 on the news website BuzzFeed. So I explained that the dossier was not a government document, Mr. Comey wrote. It had been compiled by private parties and then given to many people, including in Congress and the press. Now had been uh, compiled by private parties, the Clinton campaign and the uh, DNC, and uh, the FBI hadn't asked that uh, it be created or paid for it uh, to be created. The document was not classified and not a government document, so it wasn't really correct that it had been leaked. So a little bit of the overview. And if those documents that the president is going to uh, has approved for release are, in fact, released in toto, then we'll see perhaps more clearly to what extent that dossier played in uh, persuading the FISA court, not once, but on several occasions, to allow the wiretapping of a private U.S. citizen. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour today, we're going to talk with Tani Zarelli. She's the CEO of Options 360. And boy, are they blessed to have her in that position. Uh, today is the Clark County Give More 24 campaign, and it's an opportunity for supporters of Options 360 to help underwrite the cost of making sure that girls and uh, young women in the Clark County area are aware of the work that they do so that they can be given uh, the full range of information and make a real informed choice. So you can go to options360.org for more information on that, or you can phone them at 360-687-8943. Either way, I would encourage you to uh, check them out at options360.org. They're doing great work and they need your help to continue to do that. By the way, their goal this uh, for this campaign is $32,000 uh, to um th- to meet their goal for the Give More 24 campaign. And if you are um, uh, looking for some suggestions, $92 provides one nurse assessment, pregnancy test, and ultrasound for a woman who walks into Options 360. And, of course, there's no charge when she comes or goes and comes again. Uh, That is uh, made available by supporters of the work that they do. So uh, let me encourage you to check that out and give generously and sacrificially. Well, Nellie Orr has refused multiple uh, requests to appear voluntarily before the House committee. We were talking earlier about the Fusion GPS dossier and the role that it played in this ongoing controversy about the possible collusion and the Mueller investigation. Nellie Orr, you might recall, worked as a, a contractor for the firm behind the anti-Trump dossier and whose Justice Department husband became a back channel for passing along that information. She's refused multiple requests to appear voluntarily before the House committee. Well, former FBI General Counsel J- uh, James Baker also has refused similar requests. House J- Judiciary and Oversight Committees have spoken to numerous other witnesses, including Nellie's husband, Bruce, or as part of their joint investigation into actions taken by the Department of Justice during Hillary Clinton's email and Russia investigation. Well, her email investigation and the Russia investigation. Bruce Orr testified in late August about his relationship with former British spy and dossier author Christopher Steele. But with the um, committee unable to secure a commitment to appear from Nellie Orr or Baker, a Republican House Judiciary Committee aide indicated subpoenas are an option and they are currently being considered. Uh, The committee uh, continues to seek to the 
testimony of Orr and Baker and will compel their testimony if necessary. The Orr's role has become a key focus for Republican congressional investigators. Uh, They first alleged in the January 2018 House Intelligence Committee FISA memo that Orr was the back channel for Steele after he was fired by the Bureau in November of 2016 over his contacts with the media. Investigators went to hear, or rather want to hear, specifically from Nellie Orr as she worked as a contractor for the opposition research firm Fusion GPS, which was behind the dossier and did Russia research. Bruce Orr told the FBI about his wife's work for Fusion GPS, as well as his reservations about the credibility of the document and Steele's um, animus for then-candidate Donald Trump. However, this was not shared with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court when the dossier was used to help secure a surveillance warrant for then-Trump campaign aide Carter Page. Well, congressional Republicans argue that the dossier was improperly used to obtain that warrant and subsequent renewals of that warrant. Again, that investigation continues from now both sides with uh, documents from Strzok and Page about to be released at some point, one assumes. We had thought earlier that it was going to begin at least this week, but that does not appear to be the case as of now. And President Trump blasted Republicans today for not including funding for the southern border wall and what he described as a ridiculous spending bill passed by the Senate this week. The Senate approved an $854 billion bill on Tuesday that funds the military and other civilian agencies for the next year. It also includes a short-term fix of the key... uh, uh, um, to keep the government open into December. It includes $675 billion for the Pentagon, as well as $206 million increase in money to fight opioid addiction. The bill approved 93 to 7 now goes to the House ahead of the September 30th deadline to avoid a government shutdown. But Republican congressional leaders have said that they would prefer to tackle the border wall after the midterms in November. The appropriations for the Department of Homeland Security will be handled after December 7th, where the money for the wall would be set. But Republicans in action drew the ire of the president on Thursday, well, today, primarily because who knows the outcome of the midterm elections and if this opportunity will be presented again. I want to know where is the money for the security and the wall in this ridiculous spending bill and where will it come from after the midterms, he tweeted. Dems are obstructing law enforcement and border security. Well, the Republican push to keep the wall out of uh, play until after the midterms is stoking longstanding fears from the president's base that Washington Republicans are kicking the can on an issue they aren't passionate about until they no longer have control of Congress and can then tell voters that the matter is out of their hands. Currently, Republicans control the Senate, the House. And the White House. And while the wall was a central plank of the president's 2016 candidacy, so far little progress has been made. In March, a $1.3 trillion spending bill included just $1.6 billion for border measures, much of which was uh, for repairs to already existing fencing and ruled out any new prototypes of the kind that Trump viewed in California. The White House has said that the wall needs approximately $25 billion in funding overall. That doesn't seem to be forthcoming, at least in this latest stopgap funding bill. Well, um, in the summer of 2011, Congress passed the Budget Control Act to restrain discretionary spending and notionally pay for a statutory increase in the debt limit by reducing future spending growth. The Budget Control Act sets limits on discretionary spending for defense and domestic programs. And the move reduced discretionary spending by some $741 billion dollars. The law also created a bipartisan committee, the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, or the Super Committee, whose task was to come up with a plan to achieve at least another $1.5 trillion in net deficit reduction 
by December of 2011. Well, the Super Committee was, wasn't able to produce such a plan, which triggered an automatic reduction in the caps of $1.2 trillion minus debt service, or about $990 billion between 2013 and 2021, with $68 billion coming out of the mandatory spending programs. Well, the Budget Control Act has proven to be just a speed bump on the road to fiscal crisis. It has uh, done little to restrain the growth in mandatory programs that are driving the long-run unsustainability of the budget. And Congress has repeatedly eroded the fiscal restraint imposed by the law by amending it to increase the discretionary limits and by designating new spending as an emergency, broadening the definition of emergency so much so that it has no meaning at all, thereby evading any spending caps entirely. Well, it's now expected uh, discretionary spending will grow $484 billion in the period of 2013 through 2019. Since the beginning of the 115th Congress, domestic spending classified as an emergency has exploded from 5% of total domestic discretionary spending in 2016 to 22% in 2018. Well, that's because appropriations rendered an emergency by Congress are exempt from both the discretionary spending limits and from the pay-as-you-go law that requires all new mandatory spending to be offset by another mandatory spending cut or revenue increase. Well, there are three types of emergency designated uh, designations by Congress. Traditionally, emergency spending, it included spending on wars, disasters, you know, emergencies, and other events that are unexpected, urgent, and not ongoing. Since 2013, Congress also has authorized $267 billion in, in quotes, emergency spending on domestic programs, that's made the um, emergency spending explode in recent years, even though the emergencies, the actual numbers of them, has not. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Tani Zarelli. She is the CEO of Options 360, and today is Clark County Give More 24 campaign, asking you to give uh, to help uh, Options 360 inform the community that they are there. They're ready to help. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us because I have a new friend in studio and I'm excited to introduce her to some of you and reintroduce her to others of you. I am referring to Tani Zarelli. She is the new CEO. I say new, but relatively new CEO at Options 360. She was born and raised right in, uh, right, I was going to say here, but across the river in Washington State. She made Clark County her home in 1987. She has over 25 years of leadership experience in a variety of uh, industries. For-profit, non-profit, political sectors. Tani served as uh, on the board of directors for Options 360 and has a passion for life. She said her personal uh, testimony in written form to the Washington State Legislature and later discovered that her testimony changed the minds of key lawmakers that made it possible uh, to sustain the work of Options 360 and other pregnancy resource centers in the uh, in the Southwest Washington, really across the state of Washington. As the new CEO of Options 360, her desire is is to grow the organization's message and service to keep um, many more young women with the, the message, to reach them with a message of hope and life. And I'm delighted to have you here in studio, first of all, because it's the first opportunity you and I have had to meet, but also to let our listeners know that today is a very significant day for Options 360 in terms of that, that financial support. So first of all, welcome and congratulations. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure, Georgine, to be here with you. I have listened to you so many for so many years and I've seen you on in different events hearing your gorgeous voice come out 
I just, it's a blessing to really be here. Oh, thank you so much. Well, before we begin to talk about Options 360, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to pro-life work in this part of our, our, our country. Well, I can only say that um, it's really by God's design, and that would be the end of the story. That's but... the best answer of all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is by God's design, and, and uh, I take Psalm 139, and that's my life. It is. It carries me through the beginning of life, and it reminds me of the end of life. So, you know, nothing comes too soon and nothing comes too late. Um, but Psalm 139 says, He knit me in my mother's womb. All my days were written before any one of them ever came into being. And and so with that, I wouldn't learn that for several years, but that is my sustainer. Um, I was the 15-year-old girl, and um, the story kind of goes with being 15, thinking I'm in love. Um, we had all kinds of plans. He was a couple years older than I. Um, we were actually both virgins. Um, and... <sighs> You don't really, you know, you feel love, but you don't understand love. And there came that moment that we took our relationship into another level. Um, And it wouldn't be a while before one day I would become ill. And something inside of me said, oh, you're pregnant. And I got scared. I came from a conservative home. My parents were people of faith. I could talk to my mother about anything and everything except for this. And so um, my father was a builder. There was one place that was told to me at that time, learned about them in school. They taught our sex ed classes, um, everything. So it was the one place I knew about. There wasn't an options 360, not that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there was a pregnancy resource center even around, you know, had been developed in that time. But um, I went into my father's files to find a phone number because he was actually building the house of the director of that other organization. And it's one we're all familiar with. So I called her and she personally had the appointment with me, um, did the pregnancy test, and it was positive. Now, at that time, I, all I can tell you is I was scared to death. I remember every emotion. I can remember every thought that was going through my head. Oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to tell my parents? I don't know what to do. I don't. I'm, I, I mean, it's just it's the confusion that happens. Your brain can't even process that thought. All you know is I'm pregnant, but you don't know what it means when you're a kid mm-hmm. or even a young woman. We don't really know what that means. We just know, oh, I have a problem. And that's what we think. So the, she comes back into me and she says, okay, so here's the name of a doctor. And she hands me a business card. He's in Seattle. So like an obedient 15-year-old, I'm going to the doctor, but I don't know really what's going to happen. Nothing's explained to me. No ultrasounds were done. No nothing. Here's a card go see this doc. So I go over to Seattle and um, my boyfriend came with me and um, I got on a table and the doctors, I believe this is the only part I can't remember is if they gave me something like a mild sedation. I remember hearing machines and I remember the feeling Um, and I remember in my mind escape and I don't, it was like, I got it. I can't take this because I could feel it. And the sound of those suction machines are horrible. And I remember closing my eyes and it would be a few minutes later. I don't know how, what the time frame was, but I'd feel this nudge on my arm and it was the doctor. And I look over at him and he says, do you want to see what you did? Mm. And he puts the Petri dish in front of me. 
So a vision, an, an image was emblazoned in my mind. Years would go by and I would grow and mature and I would get married and I would have get pregnant with my first child. Now, I had buried all those memories until my daughter, until I was pregnant and my daughter was born. And at night, after I would sit in a rocking chair and sing her to sleep, I would go to bed and I would hear, Mommy, why did you do this to me? And it would literally haunt me for years. And then I buried it again. And I buried it for a lot of years. And I would I would, that marriage would fail. I would have two beautiful daughters given to me. And later I would remarry. And my husband and I were married for almost 30 years. I would become a foster parent. I would help, you know, everywhere I turned, I was being surrounded. It was like, I wasn't walking in faith at that time, but I always knew God because of my parents. But I was always surrounded with children. And um, there came a time that my husband entered into politics. And we were at a library. It had been a busy day. We were at a library for the last event, and it happened to be a pro-life. Now, by this time, I was a woman of faith, and I had been in several Bible studies. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in several Bible studies, and my heart had been totally transformed, but I still had that fairy. And this woman got up and started telling her story. And I'll never forget feeling the overwhelming. I thought I was suffocating and I had to leave the room. And I knew at that time, I, I got outside and I said, oh God, please don't stop. And the loving hand of God guided me through the steps and gave me a couple of women in my life that I would share and they would just listen. And God would begin to show me how he had forgiven me, but I hadn't forgiven. And that time came, it took time, but that time came and I felt freedom, complete freedom. Today, bring it forward, I'm now the the CEO of Options 360, an accredited medical clinic whose purpose is to help women with when they find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy, to get the resources, to learn all the options, to have the ultrasound, to make sure that the baby's placed right, that the baby's actually viable, alive. Because having having an abortion when the baby, you've already had a miscarriage, is very dangerous. So we give them the care, the compassion. We explain both sides of every choice. And then she gets to make fully informed decision. Rarely does she go on and have an abortion. When she does, we know how she's going to hurt. So we have, she knows she can come back to us and we will give her referrals to counselors who are trained in helping women who have gone through an abortion. And so my passion, Georgine, quite honestly, is that no other young woman has to go through what I do because it's a night. You never want to have to deal with what I deal with. Mm. And I'm, that's my passion. We're talking with Tani Zarelli. She is the CEO of Options 360. And if you've been listening to the station today, you know that throughout the day, we've been letting you know that they have a special event going on. It's Give More 24. We're going to take a break in a moment. When we come back, we're going to tell you how you can support the work of Options 360. So that as Tani described, there's no, uh, there's no need for another girl, another young woman to go through what she has gone through. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Georgine You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm so delighted to have with me in studio Tani Zarelli. She is the CEO of Options 360. She'd previously served on the board of directors of Options 360. She has a passion for life and uh, has shared her story. In fact, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear our previous segment, let me encourage you to go to the podcast. Uh, you can hear the rest of our conversation. Now, as the CEO of, of Options 360, what would you say is your greatest challenge in reaching out to the communities in Southwest Washington, where God has strategically placed you. Finances. You know, it takes a lot to keep a to keep a foundation, you know, keep the doors open. And we have some wonderful, wonderful donors that do help keep the doors mm-hmm. open. What we don't have are the resources to market to these girls where they're at. There's approximately 54,000 young women in Clark County in our age market, which is approximately 1534. So our target audience. Well, we have to be able to reach them. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to open up. You can open up a store, but if you don't tell anybody that you're there, you're not going to reach everybody. And so we have to go where they are. We have to develop a message that they can have. They can hear. We have to provide the services that they need. So we, as I said, we have that wonderful foundation. Now we need to get the message out because another organization is getting 8,000 of those a year. We're getting about 2% of that population. Not to mention a sig- it's significantly underwritten by taxpayer dollars. Yes, exactly. And we are, the majority of our resources come from private donors. So we need donors. If you If we want to help young women make choices and we want to help them um, to bring a, a child into the world, I can't imagine it. And I'll share a, a quick story about that later. Um, but if we want to help them, we're going to have to dig deep. We have to we have to pay for that ourselves, pay for our message. You know, in politics, that's what we always said. My husband, my former husband was in politics and that was every time we have to pay for our message. Somebody else might be getting a lot of free press, but we pay to have our message. So... Let's talk about Give More 24. This is a day-long campaign, 24 hours. How can our, what, first of all, tell us about the campaign and then how our listeners can come alongside and underwrite, can support the work of Option 360. Well, um, it's really easy. Uh, Give More 24 is a program that was designed by our community, the Community Foundation. Everybody, a lot of nonprofits, is designed for nonprofits. It's a one-day event where nonprofits can go out and just, and donors can rise up and say, yes, I am going to take care of our nonprofit, the nonprofit of their choice, to get on board. So we're asking not only our donors, but we're reaching out for new donors. Get on board and say, yes, this one day, I'm going to really pull it out of my pocket. I'm going to write the biggest check I can write. And we're going to write, we're going to raise the dollars that you need right now to take you forward. Give more to how they can help Options 360 is they can go to our website, um, options360.org, and they can click the donate button. It'll take it right to the Give More 24 page, um, our site on Give More 24. And the Give More 24 program has certain prizes they're giving. So the person that raises the most money in a certain time frame, um, it has the most donors. The foundation will add. There, there are large businesses that have, have come in and said, well, we'll add to that mm-hmm. a certain amount. And you can see that on the Give More 24 site. 
You can also call us if you want to make a donation or you want to give during one of those times where our dollars will be, we could potentially win a prize to increase our dollars. You can call us at 360-687-8943. Again, that number is 360-687-8943. Now, this is a day-long opportunity. And when you think about it, at this very moment, chances are there's a middle eight, middle school girl, there's a high school girl, maybe a, a woman who's in college. She's just now found out she's pregnant. No intention, no plan. She is mortified. She's frightened. She doesn't know what to do. There's one message that's being um, driven home for her. It's reinforced by the culture. But there's another option available. We're talking about Options 360 that says to her, we respect you as a young woman. We're going to tell you the truth, not just our part of it. We're going to tell you the whole truth so that you can fully understand your circumstance and make a decision that is fully informed. We're going to give you an opportunity for an ultrasound where you can see what's happening in uh, in your body and you can make an informed decision. That's Options 360. Now, the... Uh, the uh, I suppose it's not a sad part, but something we need to be made aware of is the fact that there is no public money that's flowing into Options 360 to make sure their doors are open and the these young women can be reached through through marketing. Quite frankly, uh, that comes from pro life people in this community. So we're encouraging listeners, primarily in Southwest Washington, but my guess is there are some right here in the Portland metro area as well, to take advantage of this opportunity, this uh, Give More 24 campaign for you to connect with. Op- Options 360 and say, yes, I'm going to give, not just give, I'm going to give generously on this occasion because I believe strongly enough in the value of life. Uh, and I want to spare that that middle middle school girl or that, that high school kid the, um, the pain of looking back on a decision she regrets by giving her the opportunity for uh, to be fully informed. So let me encourage you, go to options360.org options360.org. And you're going to find the uh, Give More 24 link and you can give there. You can also call Options 360 at 360-687-8943. Let me just ask you, Tani, what difference is it going to make if you reach your goal today to raise about $32,000 to minister to women in uh, Southwest Washington? What difference is that going to make for you in uh, in helping them? I, that's going to make a huge difference because we're going to be able to um, start looking at doing radio ads to get to reach these young women because some of these young women are listening to the fish too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to reach them through through radio. We're going to reach them through TV. They're going to see a, their, our ads on TV. They are seeing somebody else's right now. Mm-hmm. And I want them to see ours because of the safe place that they're going to be. And you know, I've been reminded all day of a story that my that happened right before my eyes. Um, my my former husband's father, a very young man, had bone cancer, and the last about the last three to four months of his life, I personally took care of. Him. And we were at the hospital. He was admitted to the hospital because he had a bad was having a bad time, and he needed to use the, the uh, plastic urinal mm-hmm. and he couldn't hold it. So he had to sit on the bed and my husband at that time was there and he sat on the bed and it, and he looked at him and I was standing on the other side of the curtain so I could hear. And I heard my father-in-law's weak voice say to my, to say to my husband, um, Joey, they wanted to abort. They pushed how I rock. You're sitting holding dinner. It was a powerful, powerful moment that, you know, he sat every day watching his son on TV as a senator. Yet people were saying, telling him, have him aborted, have him aborted, have him aborted. 
And sadly, that same scenario is playing out in the ears of young men and women today. Every day. Options 360 is standing in the gap, but they cannot do that without your help. So we're asking you to take advantage of this Give More 24 campaign to log on to options360.org. Look for the Give More 24 um, uh, logo, and there you can uh, get all the information you need, not only to give, but perhaps win a prize or two along the way. By the way, the goal is $32,000 um, for the Give More 24 campaign. We're asking you to consider providing one, two, or three vital services for a woman in need. $92 can provide one nurse assessment, pregnancy test, and ultrasound, so keep that into perspective. $184 can provide a nurse assessment, pregnancy test, and ultrasound for two women, and $276 will provide a nurse assessment, pregnancy test, ultrasound for three women. All that information at options360.org. Tani, I want to thank you for your commitment to serving uh, the community in Southwest Washington and standing by for women who will be coming in these next 12 months uh, looking for help and hope and um, encouragement. And I want to encourage and thank those listeners who already have purposed in their heart that they're going to be a part of that solution. Again, options360.org, or you can phone 360-687-8943. Tanny, thank you so much. Thank you, George. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, the presidents of North and South Korea met uh, recently and decided that they were going to move forward with the end of hostilities or a peace agreement of a sort uh, to end the conflict in the, the Korean Peninsula. But my next guest and her colleagues point out that a peace declaration with North Korea would be an historic but meaningless feel-good gesture that wouldn't improve the security situation on the Korean Peninsula. It would not uh, reduce the North Korean military threat uh, to allies and uh, or or alleviate the distrust and suspicion in the area. Olivia Enos, she's a policy analyst at the Asia Study Center, Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I think uh, the average Americans who have been following this, and my guess is not many of us have, it's a little bit confusing as to what exactly, what progress has been made. The president uh, has suggested that we might be moving toward uh, a second round of talks with North Korea. The North Korean president and the uh, dictator Kim Jong-un met, and they're talking about some sort of a peace declaration. First of all, paint a picture of where things stand today in terms of the United States uh, role, South Korea and its uh, recent a conversation with the North and what our concerns should be at this point. Absolutely. So this was the third uh, meeting between North and South Korea this year. And so I think everyone was looking again with eager anticipation to see what would the new deliverables be from this meeting. And I think that, um, you know, one of the big concerns or one of the big er gray areas in these negotiations has been the number one top priority, which is denuclearization of North Korea. And the reality is, is that um, the, the substance that was discussed on denuclearization really wasn't that different from the Panmunjom declaration that came out of the second meeting between North and South Korea. So North Korea has agreed to this term complete denuclearization, which I mean, that really sounds like, okay, they're going to denuclearize. But what uh, complete denuclearization means to North Korea is really more denuclearization of the entire Korean peninsula, which includes
includes U.S. nuclear assets not located on the peninsula that are there to provide security for South Korea in the event of some sort of military activity. And the reality is, is that the U.S. isn't going to denuclearize. So this is an untenable definition of denuclearization. So I think, think, I think we're at this unfortunate point where, you know, uh, U.S. Uh, negotiators with North Korea really need to get to the bottom of this definitional issue mm-hmm. that's foundational to resolving the entire issue. Now, uh, the president canceled a meeting with the Secretary of State and, and counterparts in North Korea recently because not enough progress has been made. But there was a positive letter from Kim Jong-un that uh, appears to be sufficient to overcome the president's displeasure at the lack of progress. And now there's discussion of the possibility of a uh, another meeting with the uh, president of the United States states and the quote North Korean dictator. Uh, your thoughts on on that and uh, the the insistence on the part of the president that he has a strong personal relationship with Kim and uh, Kim Jong-un's reluctance to continue allowing the secretary of state to be the, the lead on this, believing that President Trump has more of a motivation to move forward in a direction that's more consistent with Kim Jong-un's priorities. Yeah, you know, Georgine, I think it's too early to be talking about a second summit with North Korea. So I was actually in Singapore, Singapore during the summit. And um, I mean, it was really an opportunity for Kim Jong-un in many ways to sort of clean up his act and make himself look like a normal leader in front of the international community. But we really didn't see strong deliverables either in moving the needle on denuclearization or frankly, in raising other important concerns like the serious human rights violations occurring uh, that Kim Jong-un continues to carry out. Um, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, the president does have an interest in in a future high-level meeting like this, but the reality is, is that we really need to see progress made in these sort of closed-door talk, either led by Secretary Pompeo or by Steve Began, the newly appointed uh, representative for North Korea policy, where they need to actually press North Korea to take substantial steps, allow individuals to come in and actually verify that North Korea is denuclearizing. And I think that those steps need to be taken prior to having some sort of second high-level meeting between the president and Kim Jong-un. I mean, part of the, the the purpose of having the Secretary of State meet with his counterpart in North Korea is to define the terms that are, are being used, because as you pointed out earlier, denuclearization is understood in one way by the president and perhaps the South Koreans, but uh, it means something quite different uh, when it's used by North Korea. And some of what they, we believe they mean by it is untenable. The United States is not going to denuclearize as we understand it. Um, Very true. The, the meeting with South Korea seemed to uh, indicate that the South Koreans are satisfied with a relatively meaning, meaningless peace declaration, which isn't all that dissimilar to what we've seen in the past. Um, even though it is a political document, it's not like a formal peace treaty Uh, There's no legal impact on the armistice that would end the the Korean War or the United Nations command. What do you see as South Korea's interests at this point? Um, And are they consistent with and is um, the South Korean government uh, on the same um, path as the United States in terms of our interests and the region um, uh, and its security? So the current president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, he is 
has been interested literally since day one of his administration in pursuing a policy of engagement with North Korea. And I think that, you know, he's continued to pursue this both through the various summit meetings and even through the detente that really began um, around the Pyeongchang Olympics earlier this year. And so I think, unfortunately, right now, there are, there are a lot of areas where the two allies can and should be cooperating. But I think that, unfortunately, coming out of this new Pyongyang declaration, um, South Korea agreed to things that technically violate both U.S. Mm -hmm. and United Nations sanctions. And so I think we're starting to see these risks being revealed in the U.S.-South Korea alliance relationship. And I really think that over the coming weeks, um, President Trump should really emphasize that he highly values our alliance relationship and try and get um, the two countries to be reading more off the same sheet of music. Because I think right now there's some confusion about whether or not the administration is genuinely committed to continuing to pursue its maximum pressure policy, which I think they should continue to pursue until we see meaningful forward movement. Yeah, on absolutely. Absolutely. Olivia, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for having me. Again, Olivia Enos is a policy analyst at the Asian Studies Center at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy on the uh, Inter-Korean Summit declaration that uh, the North is uh, is looking for. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to tell you a little bit more about that, what, uh, what direction all of this has taken and what the United States should do in moving forward if we want to do something constructive. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just completed a conversation with Olivia Enos regarding the uh, um, the meeting uh, that was held between North and South Korea and the role the United States is playing in all of this and the direction we ought to take. I appreciated a piece uh, written by one of her colleagues on this very subject in which they point out that the uh, letter that Kim Jong-un sent to the president seems to have been sufficient for the president's displeasure at the lack of progress in denuclearization talks, that it, it induced him to agree to another, a second U.S.-North Korean summit. That would involve the United States president and Kim Jong-un, the, uh, the dictator. Well, the newly appointed special envoy, Stephen Bingham, uh, should first meet with North Korean uh, counterparts to work toward a carefully crafted agreement that includes clearly delineated requirements and robust verification. Now, that's what we were talking about. There's a, a need for that before uh, the United States meets a second time. Well, the uh, uh, the piece on Heritage.org points out that President Trump touts his strong personal relationship with Kim and likely sees it as a way to jumpstart stalled denuclearization negotiations. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's meeting with North Korean counterparts had failed to bridge the chasm between the U.S. and North Korean negotiating positions. Trump canceled his uh, scheduled trip to Pyongyang, that's uh, Pompeo's trip, last month after the United States received a letter from the regime harshly criticizing the U.S. position. Well, North Korea has expressed a clear preference for dealing only with President Trump trying to decouple Secretary Pompeo from the process. Seeking additional concessions from the president, whom the regime sees as more eager to maintain the proclaimed success of the summit. In the first summit, the president accepted a vague communique, unilaterally canceled allied military exercises without gaining reciprocal gestures from North Korea, and strongly praised Kim Jong-un. Well, since the summit, North Korea has successfully shifted the narrative away from from denuclearization, whatever that means, given the party who uses it, 
Toward improving relations and reducing regime security concerns, Pyongyang has argued that both uh, the uh, Singapore and the uh, uh, Panmunjom uh, summit agreements accepted that denuclearization will occur after allied gestures to alleviate military tensions and establish a permanent peace regime. Now, that's just the opposite. That sort of flips on its head what has been the priority up to this point. In the past, Pyongyang claimed that the greatest impediment to resolving the nuclear issue was U.S.-South Korean joint military exercises, which the regime argued reflected uh, allied hostile intent. Having pocketed Trump's concession to cancel the exercises, the regime now argues that a peace declaration ending the Korean War is uh, required to reduce tensions and improve relations before denuclearization. Also referred to as a peace declaration, it would be a symbolic political document. It's not like a formal peace treaty. It would have no legal impact on the armistice ending the Korean War or the United Nations command. So it is essentially a, um, a PR piece, but has very little um, uh, other uh, benefit. Uh, Pyong- uh, Pyongyang warned in August that bilateral talks were again at stake and may fall apart due to the United States' reluctance to move forward on the peace issue. Again, shifting the focus away from denuclearization, defining it specifically, and then agreeing to that. Well, after his Oval Office meeting with a senior North Korean official in June, the president told reporters that we talked about ending the Korean War. CNBC Uh, reported that Trump on North Korea meeting, we talked about ending the Korean War June 1st, 2018, and he commented after the Singapore summit that the Korean conflict will soon end. Well, again, we're talking about a political document. We're talking about an agreement that does absolutely nothing to assure the security of the uh, um, Korean peninsula. Well, Kim is expected to push for a peace declaration during a second summit if he is granted uh, that summit with the president, possibly in exchange for a data declaration with information on regime nuclear and missile programs. China predictably agrees, seeing that um, it's a way to reduce tensions while deferring the more difficult task of getting North Korea to abandon its nuclear arsenal. So again, nothing under this uh, under this process would achieve that end. More troubling is South Korea's enthusiastic advocacy of Pyongyang's strategy. Uh, the Moon Jae-in administration has accepted North Korea's in- interpretation of the uh, the two summit agreements and even emphasizes that Seoul originally proposed a peace declaration last year. Um, uh, early plan prioritized peace over nukes. That's a headline from Jungang Uh, daily in August of this year. Well, the South Korean proposal shares characteristics with the North Korean pronouncements in placing denuclearization after a series of allied concessions. Well, South Korean officials downplayed concerns over the ramifications of declaring an end to the Korean War by highlighting that the document would only be symbolic without any real effect or consequence. Uh, Advocates, however, have yet to identify any tangible benefit to signing a peace declaration, neither a specific quid pro quo that the regime would provide, nor the expected change that in North Korean policy or behavior resulting from the regime feeling less threatened. So North Korea uh, is required to do absolutely nothing in exchange for a political document that has absolutely no impact. North Korea argues that the United States has to prove an, uh, an end to its hostile policy, but it is North Korea that has habitually threatened, attacked, killed U.S. and South Korean personnel. The U.S. has already repeatedly provided non-hostility declarations and promises not to attack North Korea with either conventional or nuclear weapons. So 
Uh, this is an exercise in futility, and it would simply be repetition, vain repetition at that. Well, why would this piece of paper be expected to have a greater impact than those previously provided pledges? Well, the answer is it wouldn't. Pyongyang could point to the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, Iran's nuclear deal, as an example of the non-permanency of U.S. commitments. Well, a peace declaration could have serious negative consequences, and I think this is an important thing to emphasize for alliance security. Even limited declaration can create a domino effect advocacy for permanently signing a peace treaty, reducing U.S. deterrence and defense capabilities, abrogating the mutual defense treaty before reducing the North Korean threat that necessitated American involvement in the first place. Well, the U.S. Congress has been concerned about the president's uh, actions and words and they uh, uh, and what he might do to reduce U.S. military forces in South Korea. And they mandated in the National Defense Authorization Act that before any reductions, the secretary of defense has to certify that it is in the national security interest and that the secretary has uh, appropriately consulted with regional allies. So the president cannot unilaterally enter into an agreement under this new uh, configuration. Well, beyond security ramifications, a peace declaration could also lead to advocacy of reduced U.N. and U.S. sanctions and provisions of economic largesse to North Korea prior to significant steps toward regime denuclearization. So what should Washington do? And again, the Heritage Foundation offers uh, these suggestions, saying that the president should neither sign a peace declaration nor agree to sign such a declaration in the foreseeable future. Instead, what the United States should do, and these are an abbreviated, is articulate the, nece- the necessary conditions, rather, for a formal peace treaty, the linkage of required actions by all parties, and what is and is not included. These conditions uh, include significant progress toward North Korean denuclearization, as we define it, and reducing the conventional force threat to South Korea. The United States should emphasize that a peace treaty should be the end point of conventional arms control negotiations, similar to the conventional armed forces in Europe treaty, rather than the opening gambit of, to improve relations with Pyongyang and clearly stipulate that a peace treaty has no impact on the presence or levels of U.S. forces in South Korea. The U.S. should press North Korea to provide a data declaration of its nuclear missile and BCW program uh, that includes names and geographic locations of nuclear, chemical, biological and missile production, fabrication, test, storage facilities and the production history and amount of fissile material and WMD uh, arsenal. Uh, the United States should uh, require an agreement to on-site inspections of declared facilities to verify the date declaration within a prescribed time limit. The United States should uh, pledge to immediately end, or, or North Korea should pledge to immediately end production of nuclear missile and BCW weapons um, with a commitment to disarmament uh, of those facilities they had previously identified and pledge to enter into conventional force reduction and confidence building negotiations. Well, the United States shouldn't forget that the armistice that Pyongyang and Seoul are so eager to replace was necessitated, this is important, by North Korea's invasion in the South in 1950. That's how it all began, and that's how it essentially has been maintained. The source of tensions is not an armistice versus a peace declaration, but rather North Korea's post-war actions, including threats, attacks, forward deployed conventional forces, and development of nuclear weapons. So what happens next uh, depends largely on what the president is willing to do and whether or not he gets the cart before the horse uh, or the horse uh, in its proper place before the cart, whether or not the president insists that terms be uh, defined, whether or not the president insists that uh, he send forerunners representing the United States, a new envoy to uh, Korea or the secretary of state, 
uh, to work out some of these uh, these details rather than relying on looking into the North Korean dictator's eyes and seeing that there's something there. Uh, by the way, Bruce Klingner is a senior research fellow for Northeast Asia in the Asia Studies Center uh, at the Heritage Foundation, has some uh, uh, has done some significant work in explaining where we are, where we've come from, and why it's important, uh, again, to put the uh, cart behind the horse rather than the other way around. We'll put the, uh, I'll try to put this piece on uh, the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you'd like to explore it further. That's a wrap for today. Join us tomorrow for Fun Friday. Thanks to James Blinn for producing and engineering. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.